Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Piping Lane races up to Manjapeak, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Gunsin, Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup one. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Alsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and one by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, lay up the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Deaver has won it. American Travian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race. The history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line locked together. Dead eat! A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Zima and Light Fingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away. And Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. Hello and welcome on this week's edition of the History of the Melbourne Cup. We look at the iconic trophy, the three-handled cup, the Loving Cup. First presented 100 years ago to the winning owners, Sir Samuel Horden and Mr A. Murphy, whose three-year-old Colt artilleryman won the Melbourne Cup carrying seven stone six ridden by the great Bobby Lewis. A 10 to 1, running a track record back there 100 years ago and winning by six lengths. So what about the cup? Since then, we have presented the iconic trophy to the winning connection. So it's 100 years since we've had this type of cup, this magnificent trophy. But what happened between 1861 and 1918? So let's shed some light on the trophy, this magnificent trophy. I welcome VRC historian Andrew Lemon. G'day, Andrew. Uh, Always lovely to talk about Melbourne Cups and particularly the trophies, which have a life of their own as well as the horses. They certainly do. And for the first time, we welcome Dale Monteith, former CEO of the Victoria Racing Club and an historian in his own right. G'day, Dale. Good morning, Brian, and good morning, Andrew. I'm looking forward to this because you're talking about something I love dearly, being a historian in my own right but a racing executive that started out in racing is a history of it that drew me to the, the very fabric of this wonderful industry. Yeah, you're right, Dale, and it's, uh, it, it, the stories just get richer uh, as the years roll by and you go back and, you, and, you know, we, we have a lot of data, so to speak. Many books and, uh, have been written and written beautifully about those times and I, I love talking to Andrew about what was happening around. So, Andrew, first call to you... Um, what happened between 1861 Archer, 1861-62 to 1918? What sort of trophies were they? They talk of watches and war bonds. So what did they do? Look, uh, it was a wonderful idea that you had a Melbourne Cup that didn't actually have a trophy. The idea of the Melbourne Cup actually came from the English race, the Chester Cup. Chester's just near Liverpool, and, and that's one of the oldest races in racing history. And I think the story with the Chester Cup was that there was a cup, but the winner never got it. You just got your name added to it. And in a lot of sports, you have these perpetual trophies where you don't get to take it home or you might get to take it home for a year, but you have to give it back. Uh, So the idea of the Melbourne Cup when it was first run was it was just the name for the race, but they didn't get round to actually having a cup. Um, I think we... Uh, had a look a, a little while ago at, at whether or not Archer won any trophy at all. Uh, we've done quite a lot of research into this, and although it was claimed that there was a gold watch as a trophy, uh, if that's the case, it was not a, f- a formal official trophy. There was no trophy for that first Melbourne Cup. So the very first trophy that was given uh, was that little grey uh, pony Tory boy who won in 1865. And uh, he beat the the uh, the hot imported favourite Panic. Uh, Tory Boy's owner was given a beautiful, elaborate Victorian era uh, silver trophy, uh, and it still survives. In fact, some years ago it was uh, sold at auction and bought by the uh, the famous winemaker and racing enthusiast Wolf Blass. So he's got the Tory Boy trophy, and that's the oldest uh, Melbourne Cup trophy as it as it was. So over the rest of the 19th century, um, you know, racing would have its ups and downs and there'd be times where there was no trophy at all. They didn't get round to getting one. Other times there was one. Um, but they'd often be pieces of, of ornate um, Victorian-era silverware, sometimes a tea set. Uh, there was one gold cup, which unfortunately 
has nearly all gone. There's one piece of it that's left. Um, but it was a gold cup made in Australia by uh, a uh, Geelong-based goldsmith, uh, Edward Fisher, and he made the trophy for 1876. And I really love that story of 1876. It's the year the Philly Bryceus won not only the Derby and the Oaks, but also the Melbourne Cup in the one week as a three-year-old filly. I don't think it'll happen these days. <laughs> and uh, uh, the chairman of the VRC at the time was a fellow called James Blackwood, and he was going on a trip to England, and he decided he would generously present uh, a gold trophy to the VRC, and they could give it to the winning owner, uh, who turned out to be James Wilson of St Albans. He was the owner-trainer of, uh, of Briseus. And uh, it was apparently a very beautiful uh, trophy. We've, we've got uh, illustrations and pictures of it. Um, it was quite ornate, but it was just a cup. Um, and uh, many years later, that cup was definitely melted down, but one piece of it was kept, which had the inscription on it. So we've got this long history of, of trophies um, up to the end of that, the, uh, the century, uh, and into the 20th century uh, started to be big silver bowls and things like that. Mm. Uh, it, it's really the First World War that uh, causes uh, that to stop because imported trophies um, were not really a great idea when, the, uh, when there were submarines and uh, shipping lanes were blocked and the idea was to get uh, a local goldsmith to make a trophy. Uh, so that's really how it, where, where the idea of, of a an Australian-made trophy, a golden trophy, comes from that First World War period. And, Dale, I know you you love the history of the, the fabulous race and everything about it, and I recall at the Racing Museum when we were in Fed Square, we had on display the 1890 Carbine Trophy, and you talk about ornate trophies. I reckon that stands about a metre and a half high. It is the most spectacular trophy I think I've ever seen. It, um, you beat me to it. I was yeah. about didn't want to jump in on Andrew, but uh, that was just a classic trophy. There were so many parts to it as well. But um, so three tiers. That's was right. Like a big and, um, uh, wedding cake. It was it was amazing. And and it, fortunately, um, um, just after I started with the VRC, the club was able to purchase that trophy at auction and gift, gifted it to the Racing Museum in perpetuity with the right for the club to actually have it back for display purposes yeah. at various times. But there are a number of trophies in display in the, the Racing Museum when it was at Caulfield. Uh, and it's, uh, and they just, uh, again, they, they weren't a cup. And you had to understand it was that that's the way they did things in those days in terms of they'd like to bring things out from England, I suppose, to probably frank the mm. colonial ties to some extent as well. But the silversmiths in England were, were sublime in terms of their, their production of wonderful, wonderful trophies. And so they're, they're, they're just, um, they, just, they were part of the history of the race back then. And, of course, the transition, as Andrew's described, to uh, ultimately getting to 1919 and, and the Loving Cup. And, and that has a, a wonderful history as well, as we all know. So that's uh, 1919. It's a sort of a year after the uh, the end of the First World War. Mm. So, w- were there war bonds through 14, 1914, 15, 16, no, 17? No, in fact, the, the war bond story is relates to the Second World War. Um, the forties. That, that's right. So uh, let's go back to the to the First World War. There were there were three what I'd call prototypes before we got to the three handle Loving Cup. Uh, made each of those prototypes was made by. Uh, a goldsmith by the name of James Steeth, um, who is uh, a well-known uh, name, I think, in Australian uh, goldsmithing history. Uh, he made the first bowl as a golden bowl in 1916, and that's the trophy that was won by Sassanoff. And, um, Dale, I think you, you've, you've seen that trophy, haven't you? Was it's it from it, New Zealand? They had yeah, that's there. right. That's right. It came out, we had it on display at the VRC. At, at some stage or other, might have been around the 150th anniversary of the yeah. the running of the, the Melbourne Cup, if yep. I remember rightly. And it was, XA it was a little bowl that just with no no legs to it. Basically. I remember oh, oh, actually, yeah. I I travelled yeah. with the Melbourne Cup as an ambassador that mm. uh, the year of Sassanoff, uh, not not the year, but the mm. hundred years <laughs> on. That old You'd look pretty good for that. <laughs> Holding up okay. So we went to the property where where the owners of Sassanoff had set up their farm. And the trophy was there. It was like a fruit bowl. Mm. And we sat the year, the Melbourne Cup, it might have been, uh, was it 15 or 16, Andrew? 16. 16. Yeah. So we had the 2016 
Emirates Melbourne Cup alongside Sassanoff's Cup. And I've got a photo of that. We held them both. And they would have looked a bit like a sort of two ill-assorted brothers. But yeah, I, one's I, a fruit bowl and one's a beautiful loving cup. I described the, um, the, the, the 1916 one as being a bit like the magic pudding because it's kind of got this big round bowl and these little legs. Yeah. It's ornate, it's, um, but it, it, it's quite low off the ground. And You were there with Johnny Letts and I think he had the story that the uh, kids of the, the, the grandsons of the, of the owners of that trophy used to use it in their billy car. <laughs> That's, right. That's exactly right, the tale. And these trophies... Um, so we got to Artillerman in uh, well, 1919. He, now, he was a cracking colt, wasn't he? He was a beauty. He, he, I think um, he officially won by six lengths, but the photos record look time. more like yeah. 10, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah. And he ran a record. Yeah. And he was having great battles with uh, another horse who actually beat him, I think, in the derby. Uh, was it Rainsman? R- or Richmond, Maine. R- Richmond, Maine. Richmond, Maine. Richmond, yeah. Maine was the name yeah. of that horse. They had a great rivalry, and uh, but they um, they uh, they were uh, terrific colts. And and of course, in those days, it was quite common for the three-year-olds to run in the Derby and then go on to uh, to run in the Cup. So the trophy that that Artilleryman's owners uh, won, Samuel Horden and Alex Murphy, who was a pastoralist in uh, Victoria. Uh, that's the first time that we had the three handles um, as we know it today um, on a stem, on a base. So who the, came up with that uh, that plan, that well, idea? Well, this uh, really comes up from Steith's workshop. Um, I understand from records that I've looked at that there was possibly an input. There was a, a fellow called Bill Morn who was the... Uh, basically the manager of William Drummond's and, and company. Yeah. Now, Drummond, no longer in business, but they used to be a, have a big jewellery store in Burke Street, and uh, they were the official suppliers of trophies to the VRC. So it was quite a complicated um, network because uh, VRC employed Drummond's to give them a cup. Drummond's engaged Steeth to make the cup. Um, so there's a few people whose fingerprints are on it. Steeth made two cups before 1919 that were two-handled. Uh, one of them still exists. It's up at uh, at Randwick. Uh, they they have that uh, trophy. The uh, I think it's the 1917 Westcourts trophy. Um, but the three handles, um, it, it suddenly seemed to be a, just a, a, a really clever design. Difficult to make. Uh, the, the trophy itself describing it's about uh, a foot tall or 30 centimetres tall, uh, originally standing on a, on a separately off a timber base. And uh, from that design, every trophy since that time has been uh, based on that. They're not exactly the same. There have been minor variations, sometimes quite interesting variations, but um, that three-handled trophy really, really worked. Um, it's... Uh, it was a complicated piece of, of manufacture, um, and and I, I I might handball handball that pick that one back to, to Dale and say, yeah. look, you've you've talked to the goldsmiths over the years, and they have different explanations mm. of how it's made, but mm. it's it's not just it doesn't come out of a mould, does it? Well, you, you look at the cup and think it's just one piece, but yeah. it's actually about thirty individual pieces of of, of crafted gold that fit together to make the cup as we see it today, and of course the plinth underneath. So. As Andrew said, it's not just a mould and just producing this, this lovely shape, but it's it's handcrafted, which is it's probably unique in terms of trophies these days. You don't you wouldn't get that anymore, uh, and obviously the the gold content um, and the fact that it, um, it it's varied over the years in terms of the quality of the gold. And Andrew can speak to that as well in terms of the history of the transition mm. from that, particularly mm. around uh, from the Farlap Cup on, uh, and then. Demise to lesser value gold, as I understand it. Well, so. sometimes it was nine carat gold. Um, but it depended a bit on how flash the VRC was. <laughs> Dale would know this. And there, there were good times and tough times, weren't there? <laughs> good years yeah. and bad years. Yeah. Years when you spend and years when you pull in the belt a little bit. Mm. And uh, so there was periods of time when the when the trophies were a bit smaller, with it, but uh, quite a long period where they were made of nine carat gold. Um, interestingly enough, the way it's made now. Um, is slightly different in that the bowl is now spun as against hand hammered uh, together. Yes, so yes. the old style was to take pieces of uh, flat piece of, of gold and the goldsmith would laboriously um, hammer it soft gold but ar- around a, a kind of uh, uh, a boss or a model 
um, but it would be hand hammered. These days, it it's they get the gold to be quite soft, and they're able to uh, to shape it a bit like glass blowing. It's a mm. fascinating process, yeah, but yeah. it's labour intensive. So a lot of the value of the trophy is is as well as the gold is the making of it. Has it has it always been created in the city in Melbourne? Uh, it was for many many years um, until about. 2010 when it was uh, made up in Brisbane. Um, a number of, um, I think, Hardy Brothers took over the making of it or the uh, the supply of it from Drummond's uh, from about 1980, but it was still made in Melbourne up till, up till past 2000. That was part of a sponsorship arrangement where the club received an offer from Hardy's to take over the, the crafting of the trophy sure. and for that they, they provided the gold and the, the workmanship that went into it so it was quite a lucrative sponsorship yeah, at the time. Yeah, it's a good deal. And yeah. Of course since, since now Drummond's have got mm. it back so it's, yeah. a, it's something that again the, the, those that are actually involved in a trade uh, of, of gold trophies and, and gold in general mm. they want to be part of the cup history as mm. well too which is fantastic. Yeah. Just the, the maker of it now is a, is a company called ABC Bullion and they are making it in Sydney so um, but for many many years it was just three people responsible for actually making each trophy James Steeth was the first um, his son Morris took over the business and made the trophies up till 1970 Morris died uh, unexpectedly and there was a bit of a crisis but he had a young apprentice um, Lucky Rocker, Fortunato <laughs> Rocker, and we we all know Lucky. He's a real character, isn't he, Dale? Yeah, he certainly is. And uh, he's he's still got his goldsmith shop in Elgin Street, Carlton. Um, and uh, he was, I think, I remember Lucky saying, you know, well, he was only an apprentice, but he'd helped make the two or three before Morris died. And um, so the hard words were put on, do you think you can make one Lucky? Uh, Lucky? And he said... I'll have a go. So every trophy from 1970 till 2000 was handmade by Lucky Rocker in Melbourne. Um, oh. And then from uh, from 2000, it, it went up to, uh, uh, to, to Brisbane. Brisbane. Yeah. Um, so it's had a, had a few different um, uh, changes there. But I think the Steeth design is still really the one that, that's being followed. We're going to take a break. An intriguing story about the trophy, the uh, the Melbourne Cup and the three-handed uh, loving cup, as we call it. But along the way, in latter years, uh, there are a couple of imposters and maybe some replicas started to appear on the surface. So after this break, we'll come back. We'll talk about one particular cup that was a little bit different to others, the 1980 Melbourne Cup won by Beldale Ball. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup. Now, let's talk about the Cup of 1980. Why was it different and what's the story behind it, Andrew? I think I'm writing a book about this, Brian. It is absolutely impossible to summarise this in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> You've got more than 30. It's, uh, it's a really complicated story, but let's, let's go backwards through the time machine. The 1980 Melbourne Cup was won by Belldale Ball, owned by the Swettenham Stud Syndicate, Robert Sangster, manager. Now, Robert Sangster was the most successful, wealthiest owner in the world at that stage, um, and he was thrilled to bits to win the Melbourne Cup. I think it made him realise what what a great race it was. It certainly changed his tune about the race. And uh, so he was presented with a beautiful trophy. Um, and uh, his wife, uh, then wife, uh, Susan uh, Sangster, um, very celebrated quite well, t- took the um, the trophy back home after a couple of uh, of uh, dinners and, and back after dancing on the table at Maxim's of, restaurant on Cup Night, I yeah. think there was a bit of dancing, and maybe the uh, maybe the cup might have had the odd ding or two by the time everybody had a drink out of it. Um, and she took it. Um, at that stage, they were living in the Isle of Man, um, which apparently is a good place to live if you yeah. have tax difficulties. And so, uh, it went back there, and it was never engraved. It all it ever had on it was Melbourne Cup 1980. And normally, there's space there for the uh, uh, for the winning horse's name to Bell be engraved. Ball, yeah. Um, but it was never engraved, and in some ways, that was a really good piece of luck because uh, it so happened. That, and they had no idea, it was a well-kept secret, that the cup they were given was not a brand-new cup. 
Now, normally, mm. a new cup is made every year. Exactly. But this was recycling in action, you know. It was one of those was... years where the VRC struck financial <laughs> issues. And I think our good friend Rodney Johnson said, we've got a trophy in the, in the safe. Why don't we use that? Wow. <laughs> and so it was, uh, yeah, recycling was, was, was happening. So what it involved was, yes, there was a trophy in the safe. And so Rod Johnson, who had been involved in acquiring this secondhand uh, trophy, took it to Lucky Rocker and said, is it possible to get the engraving? It's got, it's got Melbourne Cup 1953 written on it, won by Wodala, owned by E.A. Underwood, who was the, uh, the vice uh, chairman or deputy chairman of the VRC when he won it in 1953. And Lucky Rocker said, oh, yes, it's gold. It, it, we can, we can uh, get that engraving off. We'll just buff it off. You don't lose very much gold. And anyway, it's got three sides. You can turn it around and put the engraving on the second side. So the Belldale Ball Cup was Wodala's Cup, won in 1953, uh, presented by the then Governor-General, uh, Sir William Slim, and uh, Ted Underwood died in 1961. He didn't have children. The trophy ended up going... Uh, the estate was... Uh, I think you got some, some trophies at Caulfield as well, well from that the estate. When the racing museum was set up in the late 70s and early... Uh, 80s, um, we had a number of the EA Underwood trophies on display right, in the yeah. Racing Museum. Yeah. When the Queen came out, and I almost believe this trophy was on display, she had Mooney Valley Cups and others that mm. had won at the time. Mm. And so, and EA Underwood was um, one of those wonderful people in Victorian racing. He had the, the start up in, in north of northern Victoria, where we now have Godolphin Darley as there. They, they, they acquired it some years ago, and it's a magnificent part of the history of, of, of Victorian Absolutely. racing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, the the fifty three cup um, was was quite uh, a special cup, but there was a further twist to the tale, and that is something that really only came out many years later. Uh, that it's a very likely that that nineteen fifty three cup was itself a second hand cup. It had already this whole saga had happened one previous time. And the uh, reason that we eventually twigged to this is that that trophy is bigger than any of the trophies that are made in that period, bigger than every trophy that was made from the period 1931 onwards. Now, Brian, I'm going to ask your uh, trivial pursuit question. Who won the Melbourne Cup in the year before 1931? That's 1930. Who won the Melbourne Cup? Oh, a pretty handy horse called Farlap. <laughs> that's, that's he, right. he went okay. He wasn't a bad horse. And he we, went okay. We, we had a, a lovely talk about him the, the yes. other day. Now, yep. um, what we've discovered is that the trophy that was made in 1953 had to have been made in 1930 or earlier. Now, I was telling you before that the first three handle cups made in 1919. So that gives a 12-year window of opportunity you know, it's amazing, Brian, before this investigation took place, there was a display of, of Melbourne Cups in the museum at, at, at the time, and that cup stood out as being different than the rest because it was so much bigger. And it just much it was so grand by comparison. Was it heavier? It was a lot yes, heavier. It, yes, in yeah. fact, it, it's... Um, Weighed in at, at about uh, about a kilo, so just over a thousand um, uh, grams. Mm. And most of the Melbourne Cups from that time onwards were between eight to nine hundred grams. So it would have been ten percent to twelve percent mm. larger than the other Melbourne Cups that were on display. It made the others look small by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> so are we effectively saying that in Wadella's Cup was Farlap's Cup from nineteen thirty. Look, I do we have ninety nine point forensic evidence to say that it actually was? Or? Yeah, um, <laughs> Susan Sangster, who in later life became really fascinated by the story and was amazed by the story, and of course, in, when I got to know her, she was Susan Renouf, she was mm. living back in Australia, uh, and she would say to me, Andrew, you are a hundred percent sure that it's Farlap's cup, and I would say to her, well. I'm 99%. I, I have been quoted as saying it's definitely that, but what we can say, it was definitely made in Farlap's era, and we did a process of elimination, a sort of detective, uh, a Poirot exercise, because if it's not, if it's not Farlap's, who, who else could it be? 
and there's a very small uh, list of suspects because most of those Melbourne Cups from that period are accounted for or are too small uh, or there are slight design differences and there are only, and Farlap's Cup is the most likely answer. Now we've actually various things have been tried to uh, it's it's even gone to the synchrotron at Monash University <laughs> to see if we can find mm-hmm. hidden engravings because of course if Bodala's engraving was taken off so was Farlap's. We know what Farlap's Cup looked like. We know that Harry Telford sold it when he was getting down on his luck in the uh, depression years. The, yeah. Well, it was of course he was he was doing all right in the depression years because he had he'd won the Melbourne Cup. It mm. was really later in the uh, in the late 1940s early 50s that he starts to get really down to his last uh, dollars and we know from the family stories that he did sell his cup we have a photographs of his cup on display in his own home which is at the museum so there's lots known about about it um, it weighs the it, we used to say it, it's got correct weight it's exactly the right weight that it should be uh, so all the evidence points to the fact and maybe it's a, a lovely mystery that we can never 100% solve. Um, but the most likely answer is Bildale's Balls Cup was Wydala's Cup and it was somebody else's Melbourne Cup and almost certainly Farlap's. Okay, now we, we sort of fast forward onto the later 90s, around 1998, and a fellow turns up at a used car dealer's showroom uh, or lot up there on the Gold Coast and he turns up with what he believes is Farlap's Melbourne Cup and wants to trade it for a Holden. <laughs> what happened here? I've got, have I got a cup for you? <laughs> this is extraordinary. Far lap for a Holden with the headlines in the Herald Sun That's in the right. late 90s. What was this about? Well, in, in a way, it's that story that got us on the trail of trying to work out what really happened to Farlap's cup. So the whole of these stories are, are interrelated. But in 1998, Bob Todd of Bob Todd's Motors in Port Macquarie uh, let's the Bob press Todd know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he he said, look, a fellow came in and said, I've got a Melbourne Cup and uh, I'd like to get a, uh, I think it was a Holden Barina, according to yeah. Shane Templeton's article, and uh, maybe a little bit of cash as well. And it's very hard to prove that something isn't something. You know, it's one thing to, to, to say, I can prove that this is, this is Farlap's Cup, but look at had. 1930 Melbourne Cup engraved on it. Looked like a Melbourne Cup. It said won by Farlap. I think there was a little bit of a suspicion there that the words Farlap seemed to me to be joined together as one word, and I think that's a bit of a giveaway. And but it was also solid gold too, wasn't it? It was, a nine, it was an 18-carat gold cup. It was probably made by Lucky Rocker, probably made for uh, Drummond's as a spare. And um, somewhere along the line, somebody's got hold of it, had it engraved, and uh, that's how the story began. So how, how did you find, uh, how did you check the authenticity of this one? Because you're, you're a great investigator, obviously, mm. Dale, you were a part of, a part of when this, oh, this sort of <laughs> came to the surface. He's an investigative historian, is the best way to describe it. I'll tell you what Hallelujah that we've got him. He was not going to let the, let the case go cold. Yeah. No, I, I was very tenacious, but on the other hand, I also had a, your, one of your predecessors in, in office. You mentioned Rod Johnson, who's a great mate of both of us, and Rod was always suspicious right from the start that it couldn't have been Farlap's Cup. And uh, Rod kept saying to me, passing me on little bits of information and telling me where we should go to to ask the questions. And um, I think it was uh, Ro- Rod's enthusiasm that, that really got me going, thinking this there's something wrong with this. This is dodgy. So in the end, it, it, it had to be proved. We eventually found James Steeth's workbooks, which had the weight of the Melbourne Cup mm. written in it at the time it was made. Ooh, and then good. we found the photograph, Telford's photograph at the Melbourne Museum. We were able to blow that up to look at the proper inscription. So the the punchline of all of this, Brian, is that uh, the fake photo was, uh, uh, it was beaten on the weights, wasn't correct weight, and it was beaten in a photo finish. Amazing, Dale. Amazing oh, how it just to be this part, forensic information. To be part of that was just um, every night I'd go home and think about it. I did, again, when we're trying to track down the Farlap Cup, just willing it to, to be true, to willing it to be <laughs> Farlap's yeah, Cup it, yeah. because the, the history, the, the fact that the, the, the folklore that had been melted down because of Tulsa had fallen on a hard time 
and it would have been so sad. Well, it was so sad to mm. think that was the case. But again, I, I must admit, I was a, a, certainly a willing uh, soldier in this, this exercise <laughs> and willing Andrew to do the work to come up with the, yeah. the best answer possible. And I think that is the best answer possible. It's, uh, it, it's almost certainly Farlap's Cup, and, uh, and so it survives and lives again and has had three lives. So. Uh, quite amazing. In conclusion, as we wrap up this uh, part of the uh, program, uh, we now have and celebrate this beautiful trophy for the 2019 Melbourne Cup, sponsored, of course, by Lexus. It's valued at just over $200,000. Yes, it is now, and that's partly because after this discovery was made and we came up to the 150th Melbourne Cup and there was a bit of debate about could, should we have a special cup for that mm. year. So what was the decision then, Dale? Basically, uh, well, we thought that Farlatch Cup was something special mm. we, with all the work we'd done in terms of identifying what it looked like and the weight in the gold, the, 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 the committee decided that, well, that's probably the best. That was the, probably the, the ultimate design for the Melbourne Cup, mm. 1930 or thereabouts. Yeah. It had grown in size from 1919. It had got to 1930, 1929 and 1930. And then after that, it was downsized because of finance, for financial reasons. And then when even through the war, where the club wasn't that flush with money even through the 60s and 70s and 80s the VRC wasn't as flush as it perhaps it is now so it, it was a reached its peak in terms of the design of the trophy that was my my thoughts and I mm. think the board took that view and and we're so fortunate to have it back to being what what is the probably the the ultimate in design for this yeah. wonderful wonderful trophy. Incredible! Trophy. It travels around. Um, it it now has more gold than than ever before. It's uh, a, a solid piece that it gets a lot of love now. In the old days, it just used to sit in Drummond's window, but it gets a lot of love today. Thank you, guys. Uh, we'll go for a commercial break, but uh, the stories, the the myth, the urban myth around. This great race just just grows as years go by and you, you probably never have enough time to talk about the Melbourne Cup and, and as we focused in on this trophy again and the stories behind the trophy, we're going to go for a commercial break and please stay with us because we want to talk about the, the legendary uh, carbon after this break. The history of the Melbourne Cup on RSN. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup. 1890, a horse, a great horse called Carbine, carried 65.77 kilos. Ten stone, five in the old, written by Bob Ramage. He started four to one favourite and he created a record. A record not just over the distance of 328 and three quarters for the, the two miles, but he, he was in a field of 39. And he was the idol of racing. Andrew, back then, 1890, what was happening in Melbourne? How were we placed? It's interesting connection with Farlap winning in 1930 because you've got that start of the Depression. And in 1890, things were starting to go bad in Melbourne. There'd been a huge boom. There'd been the gold rushes, of course, in the, in the 50s. Uh, Melbourne grew at an extraordinary rate. And in the 1880s, there was a great the land boom of the 1880s, and money seemed to be no object. The VRC put up a huge prize for the Melbourne Cup, uh, and uh, they had the greatest horse that had ever um, raced on in on Australian turf uh, to win that win that event. So I would say 1890 was was on the cusp. There were certainly lots of signs that things were going bad. And I think that people, a bit like with Farlap in 1930, they were looking uh, for a hero to win the Melbourne Cup. And as you, you've summarised there, Brian, the, the extraordinary thing, a field of 39. I mean, we uh, used to think 30 horses back in 1960 was too many. It's come down to 24. It's the biggest field that we have in Australian racing. And so. the second horse carried 24 kilos less than the carbine carried in the Melbourne Cup. 24 kilos. And he beat him by nearly three lengths. <laughs> That's right, in, in race record time. And, and try and get your head around this. Carbine on four occasions ran twice on the same day. And one. And, one. and he'd go from a mile to two miles. <laughs> and he did it in Sydney and Melbourne. That's right. Yeah. And Sydney, he won the Cup in record time. That's right. Uh, he was just like Brian for me... Um, it was probably the start of my involvement in racing. I became interested in the story of Carbine. So it's it's a passion for me, the history of this this wonderful, wonderful horse, not only his racing history, 
but more particularly the breeding history associated with that magnificent horse. Black Caviar, when she was racing, I did some work on it. She's had 56 strains of carbine in her pedigree. Is that right? Extraordinary number. So he's just had a, an unbelievable influence on the world breeding industry. Breeding is my, my main interest in racing, apart from obviously the, the, the feature races and so forth. But to, I, I just to delve into his pedigree and what happened afterwards is something that I could, I could spend hours on. And uh, <laughs> I know it's a bit like Rick Gamerson, who bred Black Caviar. He's that sort of person yeah. as well. He loves his pedigree. And, and you look at him, he was buying muskets. So he's beautifully named, Carbine. He came from New Zealand, New Zealand bred. He had five starts in New Zealand and won them all at two. He came to Australia for his three-year-old season. First start in the derby and run second. First start in the derby and never went home, of course. (laughs) No. No, he was too good. And in that derby, of course, it was a, a piece of, uh, what would you call it, clever clever riding that probably saw the defeat of Carbine mm. in the derby. Should have won the derby. I, I think I wasn't there, Dale, but apparently no. my grandfather was. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he told me years later, he said, I saw Carbine win, win the cup. And then there was a pause and he said, actually, I didn't see anything. I was 11, but I was there. <laughs> and uh, so he... As an example, you know, an 11-year-old kid had to go to Flemington to try and be there to, to be part of that. Um, so it, that was mm. part of the magic. It's even wonderful a, to have that link. Yeah. Yeah, even the story of his sire, Musket, he was brought out to New Zealand to sire coach horses. He was a thoroughbred. But Carriage to, and coach he, he, his, yeah. um, he, he was well-performed, but not exceedingly well-performed. So he was a well, very well-bred thoroughbred, but, uh, and they, he, that's what his purpose was. And <laughs> they just happened to put a, a mare called Mersey to him, imported mare, and uh, out came Carbine. And so tell us about, uh, Andrew, to you, uh, the great trainer Walter Higginbotham. Mm. Well, Higginbotham was uh, not exactly the Bart Cummings of his he day, was. but he was. He, he was. You he was back in those days. Yeah, he was I think the Bart he was, Cummings. Mm. He he was the one that when um, the let's go back one step. The guy who owned um, Carbine in New Zealand was Dan O'Brien, who had been a jockey in Australia, and his story is amazing. There's a really couple of really good books about Dan O'Brien and his story, but his idea was to bring Carbine to Australia, run him in the derby and sell him. And that's exactly what he did. Um, And he was bought by a a man who at that stage was very wealthy, Donald Wallace, who subsequently lost most of his wealth in the the mining collapse. And was forced to sell Carbine later on. He was. And Mm. um, but he had enormous success with Carbine as a as a racehorse. And um, so I think that uh, the the idea of, of bringing Carbine over here was was to show him off to sell him at a profit and I think Dan O'Brien thought he'd done pretty well selling him for 3,000 guineas which was a lot of money at the time he was eventually sold and I think really Dale his story as a sire although he did sire really good winners here in Australia he was sold to England and it's late in his career that he really starts to make a mark as a stallion well in he stood at about two or three seasons, actually at St. Auburn Stud, as Andrew mentioned before, down in, near Geelong. Down at Geelong, yes. And um, two or three seasons, but then uh, the owner uh, was on hard times. So, um, sold him to Duke of Portland, who at that time in England, at Welbeck Abbey, had then the world's greatest day in St. Simon standing. And, and St. Simon was getting older and older, and older in years, and, uh, and the Duke was looking for an outcross of, of, to send all the St. Simon mares to. And so um, he, he managed to purchase a horse. And the fanfare of Farlap going overseas it was even bigger for Carbine when he, was, when he left to go to, on the boat to go to England. I've got photographs of, really? uh, of, of him on display getting on the boat and, and the outpouring and the crowds when he was leaving, lining the streets of Melbourne to say yeah. goodbye to me. Yeah. It was just unbel- fascinating. But, of course, as Andrew mentioned, when he got to England, he had a, a slower start. A lot of people didn't like the look of the horse because he had a, a pin, what they called a pin head, very narrowing of the no, down to his nostrils, and mm. and there was some disparaging remarks about his <laughs> his appearance when he arrived mm, in England mm. at the time. But little did he know he'd go on inside two English Derby winners, and that he was the the great grandsire of probably the, the world's greatest stallion, being Niarco. Uh, Frederick right. Tessio cottoned on to the carbine yes, blood, yes. and through Niarco, you've got the Danzig, Danehill, Northern Dancer, all of that blood which predominates today. Uh, it, it's just an unbelievably fascinating story how this one stallion from Australia 
originally from New Zealand, but we claim mm. he's an Australian, mm. has just influenced world bloodlines unbelievably. As we go back to his race record, he got beaten by Bravo. He carried 10 stone in the 1889 Melbourne Cup, and Bravo beat him with, a, I think, 8 stone 4. But he came to win that, that Cup in, in 1890, and through his career, we note that he, he, he carried a cracked heel. So he was sort of, he was high maintenance to, mm. to get him to, first of all, to run out over those journeys. Can you imagine the types of tracks he'd have to run on? Oh, they would, they would be plough paddocks, but mm. wouldn't uh, be far off be really long grass and they, they wouldn't be watered no. in terms of being kind. No mowers. Horses, <laughs> horses, hooves. He had some other quirky um, things of nature as well. He didn't like rain. And, and so he wasn't a wet tracker. And um, Higginbotham had an umbrella, and he would sometimes work, walk with the umbrella above Carbine's ears because he knew the horse didn't like getting his ears wet. And and, uh, and that was on display at the Racing Museum at Caulfield yes, yeah. in, in the in the time that I was there. It's just he had quirks that sort of uh, that. Uh, well, being such a good horse, they they obliged his quirks. And I think you know, think of the way Maccabi Diva or Gunsin would play to the audience. Mm. Once they realise their their you know Winks is aware of what the audience, what the crowds do, and so those horses know, and so Carbine would play up to the crowd, wouldn't he, Dale? Oh, that's, that's, they're the stories of the yeah. day. Old Jack, as they used to call him. Old Jack. 43 yeah. starts, 33 wins. And uh, the story goes that on Cup Night, um, Higginbotham... Uh, stayed outside the horse's stall, didn't go to the festivities because yeah. it was a great celebration in Melbourne that particular night, so they say, uh, in 1890. The champion had set a weight-carrying record, had beaten 38 opponents, and the crowd went wild. There was only around 80,000 because times were tough in Melbourne, but the celebration just went on and on and on as this horse glided down the straight and won the Melbourne Cup in mm. stunning fashion. And those festivities would have continued on. They go by horse and carriage or by riverboat, go back to Melbourne and celebrate the Melbourne Cup, the win of this great horse. Yeah, and it's, uh, it is a story that's been well authenticated that Walter Higginbotham at the end of Cup Day went back to Carbine Store because um, there had been, as you say, problems with the horse's hoof. It was always a bit touch and go as to whether he was going to be fit to run in the race and uh, they were really looking after the hoof and uh, I like the idea of Higginbotham sort of sitting there with, with maybe a, a glass of champagne and uh, sitting there next to Carbine and just letting him, having a quiet moment together at the end of the Melbourne Cup day. Uh, but he, he was the hero. Um, a lot of people said look, you're turning a horse into a god. You know, there were a, a few a few Methodists out there who were a bit unhappy with the uh, the treatment that Carbine was getting. But, uh, you know, Australians love their horses and particularly those, those ones that uh, stand out above the others. Well, the tail end of his career, I think his last 18 starts, he won 17 races. And as you said, Brian, a number of them, two on the one day. So, mm. And at the time, with the it was the first Great Depression, 1890, mm. um, then people were hard up on, on times. And same with Farlap. Yeah. People were able to, to, to put bread on, they butter, wanted bread the butter on the table uh, with uh, some of the wins they'd have on, on Carbine. And we were also looking at just in that breeding side of it. Um, it's probably been a few years ago now. I remember you, Dale, pointing out to me that every horse that was running in the Melbourne Cup of that particular year had Carbine in the pedigree. And it's been true of every year since then. You can go through their pedigrees and there's Carbine as an ancestor of, of all the horses running in the Melbourne Cup and it would probably be the same this year. Oh, I've no doubt whatsoever mm. about that, Andrew. You, mind you, you go back probably 10 generations or thereabout, mm. but he's still <laughs> there as a foundation stone to uh, the, the very the, the nature of the thoroughbred we have today, the the animal that um, the, the animal that delivers so well to the, the racing industry and the performances of the horses. And, and just, there's, just there's also, uh, he had three direct, generations of uh, who won the English Derby because Spearmint won the won the Derby and then a son of Spearmint won the Derby Spion and Spion Cop Spion Cop uh, mm. and then there was a third generation so uh, he made he made his present felt in the English and then of course in the uh, American international breeding scene when he uh, won the uh, Sydney Cup um, he was a 3 year old he carried 5.5 kilos overweight for age he beat Melos and Abercorn in record time that was 1889 
uh, and he came back to win the Sydney Cup again at 1890. But of course, Abercorn itself was a, was an outstanding horse of that period. He's in the Australian Racing Hall of Fame exactly. now, Brian. So he was no mean horse, and I think um, the the uh, connections of Abercorn up in Sydney, the Honourable James White owned Abercorn, and uh, he was a very successful racing owner. Uh, in another, in a different year, it would have been Abercorn would have been the hero of the day. Um, but uh, Farlap put him a little bit in the shade. Mm. And the, the jockeys who shared the spoils aboard uh, the Great Horse Carbine were Jack O'Brien and Bob Ramage. Mm, um, and it changed from time to time? It was mainly um, O'Brien and... Um, it wasn't Jack. It was... Uh, was it... Um, I'm having a mental block there. But Ramage... Um, was a uh, had a very good connection with with the horse, and um, he was he was a top jockey of his day. Uh, Dale, when you look at his last performance, uh, it was in uh, April the fourth of April, eighteen ninety one. So he won the Melbourne Cup, uh, came back in the autumn, won the uh, on the twenty sixth of February, won the eighteen ninety one Essendon Stakes and the Champion Stakes in early March, the All Age Stakes at Flemington on the seventh of March. Then he uh, had the campaign where he, he eventually moved to Sydney, got beaten in the all-aged up there in, in uh, early April of 1891, but then won the Cumberland uh, Stakes over two miles. And then two days later, his final win was in the AJC Plate over three miles. It took six minutes and 27 seconds. <laughs> so that's the last time we saw him, the 4th of April, 1891. Yes, he had the, the cracked hoof heel actually caught up with him. And... Uh, they had no choice but to retire him, as I understand it. As I said, then after he retired, he went down to St Albans Stud, you know, back as marched a long way. And, uh, yeah, and I think uh, he, he stood at a, then at a, a very significant service fee for, mm-hmm. for thoroughbreds in Australia at the time. And he was, and as Andrew mentioned, he did have some quite a bit of success in Australia. He's, he's probably his best son was a horse called Wallace, who won a Victoria Derby and mm-hmm. AJC Derby and other races. But... Wallace actually was a champion sire in Australia. Absolutely, uh, uh, a number uh, of times as well. I'm pretty sure Wallace is buried at Bandura. At the uh, look all around Australia, you can find little bits of our racing mm. history. Um, uh, Wallace was stood at the at the Bandura Stud um, by J. V. Smith. And is that at the Mill Park area? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's so some stables. There's an old barn there, isn't it? You've there? got Septimus Miller's old Mill Park Stud, and just be- but before you get to that, just past La Trobe University, it's now uh, it's a um, part of the uh, local council has an art museum there, and uh, in that area there you'll find Wallace. Uh, that's where he stood, and also another famous Melbourne Cup horse is buried not far away from there, and that was the great Shad. King, oh, the, uh, yes. the red cadeau of his day, the horse who nearly won the Melbourne Cup four or five times. Wonderful horse. Oh, so uh, Dale, you, you talk about the trace of, uh, of bloodlines back through the Great Black Caviar. What about the horses that are coming out, uh, the imported horses that are coming out from Europe mm. particularly? Can we trace uh, Carbine back through? Absolutely. Through the, yeah. Like all the um, Sadler's Wells, Galileo's, the, the Northern Dancer style line, Niarco, going back to the great Dan being uh, mm. by Cat, uh, Spearmint, a, 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 a the son, Derby of, winner. son of Carbine, the Derby yeah. winner. So that that sire line in particular, but uh, it just uh, the polarisation of, of, of breeding in terms of stallions is uh, it's sort of in, it's it's ensuring that Carbine is in every every pedigree that we see in the Melbourne Cup every year. It's akin to Star Kingdom through the uh, the Golden Slipper, isn't it? Yes, yes. So but, more, but even, even more, further back. more so worldwide. Star mm. Kingdom had yeah. a, a huge influence in Australia from the mid nineteen fifties through till probably the the nineteen nineties. Then it's it's waned. There's still a couple of Star Kingdom stallions around at the moment, uh, but not many of them. So, uh, yeah, but the Carbine Sireline died out in. Uh, the 1950s, or the 60s, I think it was, Felstead. He had a carioca, carioca yeah. I think it was one of the um, horses that won a decent race in Sydney. That's right. Uh, and, uh, yeah. so, uh, so where does Carbine sit? We we talk of uh, the great Red Terror, Farlap, but he, he certainly sits up alongside Well, I think Farlap, the, 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 because of the, the depression and going overseas and winning, and, and he probably stands supreme as number one, and... And even today, as you know, the, the the museum in Melbourne, without Farlap, they would probably get half the crowds go through that exactly. museum. Yeah. And so that it perpetuates the story of Farlap and the, the young children that go to that museum to see this this wonderful horse, the height of a horse, and they hear about his story. We've had the film Farlap, of course. But Carbine, really, in, in terms of his racing career, was every bit as good as Farlap in, in his era. And... and 
And of course, his immortality continues through the, the breeding through that side. Breeding absolutely. Line. And, and of course, uh, the, the skeleton, you can't go and see his skeleton. It's not quite the same as seeing the stuffed hide. The skeleton we had that moved. at the museum That's where the right. skeleton would move, too. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it, so it. it's still on display at the, uh, at the National Sporting Museum at the MCG. Mm. And in fact, just a, it's a good reminder of people that there's a lot of the material that Dale was talking about that's on display at the National Sporting Museum. And you can see Carbine's uh, skeleton. And there were bits of carbine sort of spread everywhere because I we was had going to get to that waste not want not, oh. and I think uh, on the VRC committee table when I first got there in two thousand was his hoof, oh, and it had these little, little bullets in front of it. And in in the inkwell, I used to hide the key to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so after the committee meeting, they'd go to the carbine, the carbine hoof. In New Zealand, the Auckland Racing Club chairman's chair was made out of his hide. Oh. They made. Uh, tobacco pouches and distribute them around oh. the countryside and even his head was given to the his stuffed head uh, yeah. was given to the Auckland Racing Club and I never forget when I was <laughs> had the, the the Melbourne Cup on tour one year we we visited Auckland and in the safe was this head <laughs> on the floor Come of the on. safe uh, <laughs> Looking up at me. <laughs> they did things differently. And I just, oh, I felt oh. so sad. But, oh. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's buried at Welbeck Abbey and um, actually some Except years ago. <laughs> yeah. have, you, have you been back to see the headstone? Have you, have you I haven't, but I know someone who actually yeah. grew up there and oh, I, I caught gee. up with him some years ago and, and we put two and two together. He grew up on the stud property. and was What, what age was the horse when he, when he, he passed? 27, 28 years of age. Uh, he had a innings. really good life mm. Um, mm. and he looked really healthy and he was a, just a beautiful looking thoroughbred. The, the yeah. body of the horse, you just, uh, was just you fall in love with him as a, as a thoroughbred I person. think Dale has. Have, yes. Well, you know, we have uh, Farlap standing outside the entrance at uh, Flemington. We have the great Maccabi Diva down on the lawn. We have Bart. We have Roy. And I know the, the wonderful writer, Les Carline, who passed away uh, earlier this year, he was hell-bent on getting a statue to Flemington of the great Carbine. That's, that's something we've got to do. I think um, your friend and mine, Amanda Elliott's a good mm. one to take up that cause yeah. because... She will acknowledge the history of, of the VRC and the Melbourne Cup and how carbine plays so much a part of it. We do have a stall at Flemington, yes, uh, which uh, is near the bird the bird cage area, so people on race day can actually wander in there and have a look. A lot of photographs on the wall, so to be able to to make sure that survived uh, after so many years, mm. I think is a, is a wonderful thing. But mm. I agree with you, it's entirely appropriate that there is a statue of carbine. We'll work on that. We'll work on that, gents. Great to have your company uh, on this edition of uh, the history of the Melbourne Cup. We do ten editions. This is edition number six, so we've got a couple of weeks to go, but. We've got to come back because there are so many untold stories. Uh, the romance of this race, just about the trophy, about the people, there's still so much to talk about. Yeah, we haven't even got to the uh, recent the recent times, have we, Brian? It's a I'm few more interested in the old times, actually. Yeah, well, that's right. It's, it's such a rich story. It mm. goes back so many years. Yeah, and what's going to happen this year? Who knows? We can't predict that. Can Lloyd Williams win it for the seventh time? He'll Extraordinary. Try hard. <laughs> we know that. Well, he's bringing Frankie out to ride Master of Reality, and my pocket's saying, I hope he can win. <laughs> Gents, thank you. thanks so much for your time today. Absolute pleasure, pleasure Brian. And Andrew, His- thank you. Thank you. The history of the Melbourne Cup. Intriguing stories. Look forward to your